Well, if we can try and impart to you just half of the encouragement that you all have already provided to us, then I'll feel like it's been a mission accomplished. You know, we come, it's good to travel and to preach, and and you hope to encourage people, uh, particularly by the Word of God. But what you all may not realize is how much opportunities like these encourage the preacher. And it really does. It's a wonderful thing. Yesterday, as we concluded our afternoon service, we also concluded half of this gospel meeting because three sermons were already done and only three more remain. And uh, as I've sort of reviewed the tape from yesterday, that's what preachers do on Mondays is they review the tape (laughs) from the day before. And I've just been struck by how kind uh, you all were and have been and have been tonight uh, to my family and to me. Thank you for that. Open to Hebrews chapter 2, would you? Hebrews chapter 2. Can Jesus forgive me? I mentioned yesterday that in ministry, one of the things that I find most often is not that individuals doubt the promises that are given in Scripture. They very much believe those as they relate to other people. What I often find in ministry is people who struggle to appropriate those promises to themselves. How can this be personally true for me? How can Jesus forgive me? When we come to Hebrews chapter 2, we find that the writer of Hebrews is addressing what Jesus has done to make it possible for us to be forgiven. And and I'm hoping that as we go through this this evening, you'll apply this personally. Look at what he's done to forgive you. I'd like to pick up in verse 5 of Hebrews 2 as we establish the context of the passage. When the writer says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. And now, beginning at verse 6, he's going to cite the 8th Psalm, Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. So in Hebrews 2, 6, it says, What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Pause. Best I can tell. The 8th Psalm is talking about human beings. And while there is a fulfillment of that that has to do with Jesus, within the context, and even the context here of Hebrews chapter 2, we're talking about human beings. And the psalmist is saying, Who am I, God, that you're mindful of me? Who am I that you would take notice of me? You have designed everything to be under the subjection of the human beings. We, we saw that in the creation week, right? Going back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God set Adam in the garden to tend it and to keep it. Adam is the one who named all the animals. Adam and Eve were the ones who were to be over all of the created order. That is to say, uh, animals, when relation to man, man has dominion over those things. Man is to be the one that is humankind or to be the one who are tending and taking care of the earth. Sidebar, Adam was told to work and to keep the garden before the fall. Work is not a consequence of sin. 
All right? That work is hard as a consequence of sin, but work itself is not a consequence of sin. God designed human beings to work, and he placed us in an environment in which we would do that very thing. The problem is, rather than man having authority over the created order, oftentimes we allow the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life to have dominion over us. And everything that God created to be and the order of things, the hierarchy of things, is now all off kilter. It's out of whack, as we say down in Tennessee. Do you all say that up here in Bowling Green? All right, it's all out of whack. I'm glad we're communicating with one another. You speak my language, okay? It's not the way that it's supposed to be. And so we talk about worldliness. The Hebrews writer gives this commentary there in the middle of verse 8 after he concludes his citation of the 8th Psalm. He says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. See, the Hebrews writer, best I can tell, is demonstrating the fact that, listen, in the present fallen world in which we live, things are not the way that God originally designed them to be. We allow worldliness and desires of the flesh and physical things to take precedent over matters related to God and the kingdom. And that's why Jesus comes and he tells us, you need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all the physical stuff will fall into place in the way that it should. Matthew 6, 33. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Verse 9, but we see him for a little while, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Did you see the contrast that the writer just made? All right, here's man, and here's the state that man is in, and here's all the stuff that man has done, and it's not exactly what God wanted it to be. In fact, it's departed from that original plan, but we see Jesus. Ah, here's the hero of the story. Here's the one who's going to set things right. Here's the one who's going to make the difference. We see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Ah, just like man, up to verse 7. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, you're a part of everyone, right? And so am I. This is about our salvation. And what the writer of Hebrews is about to do is to give us a wonderful description of how that statement is true. He, Jesus, was made like man. He came in the form of a man, that is, in the form of a servant, Philippians chapter 2 will say, verses 5 through 11. And in so doing, he came so that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Three points of emphasis as we consider together how that is true, and in so doing, as we answer the question before us this evening, can Jesus forgive me? Oh, he can. And the Hebrews writer is going to tell us how that's true. In the first place, the writer is going to demonstrate to us that Jesus is a qualified Savior. We see that in verse 9 and then continuing into verse 10. Look at verse 10 with me. For it was fitting... 
That is, it was proper, it was becoming of his character and his purpose that he, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, there's a lot to chew on in that verse. The writer of Hebrews has really packed verse 10 with power. So let's, let's analyze it a little bit. It was consistent with the character, purpose, and nature of God the Father. By the way, God the Father for whom all things exist. That is to say, all things are ultimately intended to benefit him. Now just stop for a minute and think about that. Everything is designed to glorify the one who made those things. That includes you and me, right? In 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do. That doesn't mean that everything we do is religious in nature, right? It doesn't, it doesn't mean that everything has to be churchy. What it does mean is that the things that I do, even the simple things, even the mundane things, in the context, he's talking about what you eat and drink. And he says that in the discussion of meat that's been offered to idols and whether it's appropriate to eat those things. And he says, hey, listen, we know, right? It's just cooked meat. It doesn't matter. If your conscience has an issue, don't eat the meat. But whatever you do, you make sure that you can glorify God in what you are doing. Now that assigns tremendous significance to just the simple things of life. And there's a way that I can conduct myself that can exude glory to God. That is to say, I can glorify God in these things. And the writer of Hebrews says, that's what everything was created to do. You remember in the triumphal entry as Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem for the last time and people are shouting Hosanna and they're putting the palm leaves down so that the donkey on which Jesus is riding is sort of like rolling out the red carpet, you know, and these palm leaves that are coming down and somebody says, would you tell those people to quit saying all that Hosanna to the highest Hosanna, Hosanna? And he says, if I didn't, the rocks themselves would cry out. Don't you think he's getting at something there? I mean, I know there's a greater point in the context, but ultimately God created this universe to shout of his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork, Psalm 19 says. But everything was created for him and by him, the writer of Hebrews tells us. That is to say, in him, God the Father, everything finds its reason. So it was fitting that he, who is the creator of all things and who is the one in whom all things find their reason and for whom all things were made, it was fitting that he, in his purpose of bringing many sons to glory. Also, look at what God the Father wants. He wants a people for himself. A people whom we discussed yesterday in Bible class is his people, the assembly of the firstborn, the saints, the Christians, the church, the kingdom. It's this people that he's trying to bring to glory. Now, how's he going to do that? Because this is a fallen people. This is a people who rebelled against God. In fact, the writer has just established that in his quotation of Psalm 8 and then his elaboration on that. It was fitting that he, God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, the founder, the one who goes first, the pioneer, 
the captain, the leader, the author, the one who's blazing the trail, the one who's out in front. It's their salvation, not his. Jesus didn't die to save himself. In him was no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth, right? 1 Peter chapter 2. He made the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Wait a minute, I thought Jesus was already perfect. Just quoted to you 1 Peter chapter 2, which teaches that. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 Passages even like what the writer of Hebrews will establish as we go. I mean, it's without a doubt, right? For we have not a high priest, Hebrews 4.15, who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. We're not talking about Jesus' moral perfection here. When he talks about making Jesus perfect through suffering... He's talking about what was necessary in order for Jesus to be qualified to be our Savior. The writer of Hebrews uses a term that was used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. And when those folks were getting together and they were translating those terms out of the Old Testament Hebrew and into Greek, they used the very term that the writer here uses, translated in our versions, perfect, through suffering, perfect. They used that word to refer to the process by which the Old Testament priests would be consecrated into the office by various rites. These are the things that they need to do, the processes that need to be done in order for these men to serve in this capacity. And that's the way I believe the writer of Hebrews is using this term here. Jesus had to be qualified to be your Savior. Now how would he do that? He made him perfect through suffering. Perfect through suffering. It took the suffering and the death of Christ at Calvary to perfect him or to qualify him for the task. Qualification demanded suffering. You know, Jesus didn't come to earth haphazardly. His coming here and his going to the cross was not only intentional, it was vital. We referred yesterday to the garden prayer, the garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus prays three times, Father, if there's any other way other than the cross. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus continually set his face toward Jerusalem. I mean, all throughout his ministry, he's thinking about that. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, says he begins that journey. And it's not until, what, Luke, Luke 17 or so, that he actually enters into Jerusalem. But he's making his way there all the way through. Jesus is laser-focused. And so in the garden, he's praying as he's feeling the stress of what's about to transpire in less than 24 hours. As Dr. Luke tells us, he begins to sweat like drops of blood. And he's praying three times, so much so that... After these prayers, angels are coming and ministering to him. That's some pretty intense praying. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus had to endure that. The answer was no. There is no other way. And the writer of Hebrews is telling us that he had to be qualified. He had to be perfected in order for him to be our savior 
And please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, but I think it's biblical that if we wish to enjoy the benefits of what he did for us on the cross, we too must be, so to speak, qualified. That is to say that there is sacrifice that demanded of us. You know, we sing the old song, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? And then we answer it, no. There's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. Jesus' words in Luke 9, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Well, you know how hard it is to deny yourself, don't you? You ever been on a low-sodium diet? Cut out the sugar? That's hard stuff. You start talking about temptation to sin. Deny myself. That's hard. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. All right, the tense of all this, and it's even reflected in the English. I have been crucified. Here's something that happened in the past, and it has continued results. Paul says, I'm a dead man walking. It's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If I want to enjoy the blessings of my Savior... If I want to be saved, then I have to unite with his spirit of sacrifice and even be willing to sacrifice for him. He died for me on that cross, and I have to take up my cross. And I have to, in so doing, die with him. Something that happens and begins in the watery grave of immersion for the forgiveness of sins, connecting with the blood of Jesus. That's what Paul meant when he says, I was crucified with Christ. And then Paul rose to walk in newness of life, and he says, now it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. Is it all sunshine and rainbows? No, not living the Christian life. It's the best life anybody can live, though. But it's a life of sacrifice, and sometimes even a life of suffering. Knowing that the promises that the, that the promises that await us are so much better that it's not worthy to be compared, the things that we're enduring now, with the glory which shall be revealed. Romans 8, verse 18. A qualified Savior. But it gets even better than this, okay? Keep reading in Hebrews chapter 2. We see in the second place, beginning at verse 11, that the work of Jesus... What he's done in bringing about our forgiveness, he was qualified to do it by virtue of the suffering that he endured. But in so doing, he also has produced a people of his very own, a unified people. And you know what? When you're forgiven of your sins by the Lord, by virtue of your submission to his plan for your sins to be washed away and remembered no more, then you get to be a part of a people, his people. But look at what he's done. The focus here is not on the union that we have with one another, but how God has brought us to him through Jesus. Verse 11. For, all right, here's why he had to be qualified. For, he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source. Some translations will simply say, and I think this reflects the original a little better, they are all of one. And that is why he's not ashamed, Jesus is not ashamed to call them, those who are sanctified us, brothers. Now stop just a minute. The people in view here 
are the people who are sanctified, who are set apart, cleansed, purified. That's all that word means. Made holy, sanctified. There's a unity that's emphasized between Jesus and those whom he sanctifies. And as a result of that, the end of verse 11 says, he's not ashamed to call them his brothers. Now think about that. If you're a Christian tonight, Jesus calls you his brother or sister. And you can refer to him. Sometimes we call him this, this is biblical, as our older brother. I remember years ago I was teaching this concept. And apparently it was a concept that some folks were unfamiliar with. And when I said that, the look on their faces told me that they were very uncomfortable with me referring to Jesus as my brother. And I understand that, wanting to respect, you know, the deity of Jesus. But at the same time, that's what this text teaches. And, and the point I think that we need to really emphasize is that to call Jesus our brother does not in any way denigrate him. The purpose is to elevate us. That's what's going on here. Look at what God through Christ has done to bring us out of the mire of sin and then to elevate us on a status that, Paul will put it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, we are adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. He is not ashamed to call them brothers. And the sense of the word is not just limited to the males, but it includes the sisters as well, all right? We're all in this family together. And so the writer of Hebrews quotes a series of Old Testament passages and puts the words of those Old Testament passages into the mouth of Jesus in our context. Verse 12, saying, here's the first quotation. It comes from Psalm 22, verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, I love that an inspired writer has told us that this is a messianic psalm, Psalm 22. You can read the 22nd psalm and you can see the overlap between what the psalmist was saying all those years before it happened and then what happened on the cross there as it's recorded in our accounts of the gospel message. But here, that 22nd Psalm is put in the mouth of Jesus as he's looking around and saying, I'm going to tell God the Father, I'm going to tell of your name to my brothers. And then look, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus is not some far off ruler. He's pictured in this text as being right here among us. And in fact, in this specific passage, being here among us as we are singing. I think a lot about Jesus when we take the supper on Sundays, don't you? I'm reminded when he instituted the Lord's Supper when he said, I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And then I think about 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul says, you know, this, this bread that we eat and, and the cup that we drink, this is a fellowship, it's a communion with one another, but also with the Lord himself. I mean, it, it is fair for us to say that he is among us when that is taking place. And this text seemed to indicate that the same is true while we're singing praises. Imagine if Jesus walked in and sat on the pew next to you. Would it affect your worship? <laughs> what kind of question is that, right? Of course it would. Imagine singing some of these wonderful songs. That we've sung tonight with Jesus sitting right next to you, singing about the cross, 
Wow. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Jesus is our older brother. And you know what this passage teaches me? The Hebrews writer citing the 22nd Psalm, he tells us about God. In the, I will tell of your name to my brothers. You know, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus says, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus emphasizes throughout his ministry that the message that he's teaching corroborates with the message of God the Father in heaven. And then he says that when he leaves earth and returns to heaven, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, will come and he's going to teach you the same things that I've been teaching you. It's a unified message. But just think about how much Jesus the Christ teaches us about who God our Father is. As he's giving that wonderful parable that we call the parable of the prodigal son. Really, the parable is about both of the children, right? One boy who stays and one boy who goes. But in each instance, the focus is on the love, the tenderness, the compassion, the mercy, the patience of the father as he interacts with both of his boys. And Jesus tells us that to to demonstrate the love and the mercy and the patience and the compassion of our heavenly father toward us. Wow. Our older brother taught me that about our father. But then in verse 13... He says, and again, I will put my trust in him. Let's stop for a minute and just think about how often the Old Testament emphasized trusting in God. And consequently, it can be somewhat difficult to pinpoint exactly the passage that the writer of Hebrews is quoting here in chapter 2, verse 13. If you have a center column reference in your Bible, you may see several options like Psalm 18, verse 2. Or maybe even, and this one's my personal preference, although you can disagree and we can still be friends, Isaiah chapter 8. The reason why I kind of land on Isaiah 8 verse 17 is because the next quotation at the back half of verse 13 is from Isaiah chapter 8 verse 18. All right, so maybe he's pulling from the same context. Anyway, the focus is on this application I will put my trust in him. Now, these words are placed by the writer of Hebrews in the mouth of Jesus. And so Jesus is first saying, I'm going to tell you about God the Father. But in the second place, we have Jesus being like us to some degree. That is to say, he knows what it's like to live among us and to submit to and rely on God even from here on earth. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He was fasting for 40 days leading up to the temptation in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And I don't believe that that was probably the only time that he was tempted throughout his earthly ministry to you. He knew what it was to rely. I mean, think about the importance that Jesus placed on prayer throughout his ministry. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. And he understood the importance of taking some time to pray. Isn't that relying on God? Isn't that trusting in God? I will put my trust in him. All right. The verse 13 continues. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. All right. This is a citation from Isaiah chapter 8. More on that in just a minute. The point seems to be that these words placed in the mouth of Jesus, he's saying that he's with us. Our older brother is among us. He's with us. And yes, he's among us in the congregation. But here we've got this. It's like Jesus is saying, look, here I am. And here are all of God's children right here with me. We're all around this together. 
If you go back to Isaiah chapter 8, boy, you read the emotion of what Isaiah, this prophet, is going through. I mean, I know Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, but Isaiah didn't have a cakewalk either. In fact, Isaiah is basically told, hey, listen, you're going to preach to these people. This is Isaiah chapter 6. But hearing, they won't really hear. And seeing, they will not believe. Their hearts have grown dull, and so you're going to preach to them, and you need to. But I just want you to know that they're not really going to respond in a favorable way. And so Isaiah is instructed as he has children to name his children certain names that have significance in terms of the meaning of those names. In Isaiah chapter 7 verse 3, we read of one of Isaiah's son's names, Shir Yashuv. By the way, if anybody's looking for baby names, grandchildren, it's one maybe to put on the list. The significance of that name is that it means a remnant shall return. Think about that. Little Shir Yashuv is walking around, and while he's doing, maybe even as he grows up, but while he's doing that, his name speaks about this prophetic hope that is to come. There will be a remnant. The remnant will be preserved. The remnant shall return. And then Isaiah chapter 8, verse 1, tells us another name of Isaiah's sons. Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Hiram, I probably didn't pronounce that correctly in terms of the Hebrew. You can correct me next Sunday. But uh, the significance of that term, uh, once again, the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. And in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18, Isaiah utters the words that the writer of Hebrews utters. As he stands there in his prophetic ministry, Isaiah does, and he says, here am I and here are my children. You think about the significance that those boys' names bore. How just them, themselves, just by the very names of those sons, were preaching a message because of the significance of those terms. And that is overlaid and placed in the mouth of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2 as he's saying, here am I and here are God's children and they wear a special name, a new name. A name that's not just thrown out, thrown around to anybody. This name, Christian. They're adopted into your family, God. And I'm with them. We're all together, a unified people. But in the third place, and this is my favorite point of the three, they're all pretty cool, aren't they? But when you start at verse 14, we see that Jesus in his work not only has qualified himself as a savior and created a unified people, unified that is to God through Jesus, but also that he is a certified priest. Now stick with this, because this is an amazing point. Beginning at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. By the way, that's an interesting way to word that, isn't it? We share in flesh and blood. That is to say, like Jesus did when he came to earth in flesh and blood. And that's the point that he's going to make. But doesn't that also imply that there's more to us than meets the eye? We share in flesh and blood, but there's something else to us. We have a soul, 
And while it is not eternal in the sense that we did have a beginning, it is immortal, and as such, it never has an end. Consider that. You will never stop existing. Oh, sure. Life is like a vapor. It, you know, it, it appears for a little time, then it vanishes away. But it's appointed a man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Hebrews 9.27. There's something else after this. And you and I will be there. Existing into eternity in one of two eternal destinations. And you know what they are, right? Heaven or hell. More on that, by the way, Wednesday evening when we talk about what about the second coming. For our purposes now, though, there's more to us than meets the eye. And by the way, it's something that an MRI or an X-ray or CAT scan or any of those other fancy things will not reveal to us, right? You can't get an X-ray and see your soul, but it's there. It's actually who you are. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. Now, why did he do that? That, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. There's a profound truth here. The point that we're trying to make in application is that Jesus is a certified priest. That is to say, he's genuine. He's the real deal. He is able to do what a priest did in Old Testament times, which is to offer the sacrifice on behalf of the people. Now, of course, you know that with Jesus, he's not just the one who offers the sacrifice. He's also the sacrifice himself. And so he serves as this high priest who is doing this work on behalf of the people of God. And he's the real deal. He's genuine. He's authentic. And the Hebrews writer gives us two reasons as to why that is. Number one, he had to be made like us in order that he could die and destroy death. Now think about this a minute. God cannot die. So if God chooses that he wants to redeem this creation who have allowed worldliness to creep into their hearts and thus sin. And the only way that they can be redeemed, as the writer of Hebrews will flesh out throughout the rest of this book, is by a perfect, sinless sacrifice. And that means that God, God the Son, the eternal Word, that is Jesus in his pre-incarnate state, is going to have to come... And he's going to have to be made like us so that he can die. God can die. But Emmanuel, God with us, can. God who comes in the form of the flesh, in the form of a human, taking on himself the form of a servant. That changes things. And that makes it possible for Jesus to use Satan's worst weapon against him what does the devil have in his toolbox really fear sure but doesn't it mostly revolve around death he'll use death to discourage us and sour us he'll use death to derail us and cause us to think maybe God doesn't care God didn't answer God's not with me 
He'll use the fear of death to cause Christians to stop in their tracks. I can't go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations because what if... And you know, there's no way I could exhaust the possibilities of the completion of that sentence. And Jesus comes. And in dying... He uses Satan's own weapon against him. I suppose, remember, right, sometimes we we accidentally assign God-like characteristics to Satan because Satan is a spirit being and we can't see him and he exists in the spirit realm. But remember, God and Satan are totally different and Satan is not God. Satan doesn't have a perfect knowledge of everything that's going to happen. He doesn't know the end from the beginning. And so in my mind, on the Friday that Jesus died, Satan thought he had it. He thought he'd won. But come Sunday morning, when the tomb was empty... Well, that reminds me of Genesis 3. God said to the serpent, you will bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And as Jesus defeats death, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he is the first fruits. That means he's the first, but there are others who are going to follow. And one day he's going to come and the dead in Christ will rise first. Look at the way the Hebrews writer then describes this. Going back to verse 14. Since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood. He, Jesus, himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy, render useless the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. He took Satan's weapon away from him. And delivered all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came and destroyed death. Satan's power is in human weakness. Fear, pain, corruption, uncertainty. And Jesus comes and he takes all that fear away because he lives. And then he has delivered us. You know, unless Christ delivers men from slavery, they'll be slaves all their lives. But he has delivered us. And of interest, verse 16 tells us that surely it is not angels whom he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Wouldn't you like to know a little more about that angel stuff? Well, I wish I did. I have more questions and answers about that. You know, I read like 1 Timothy 3 about the angels who were overtaken with pride and they fell. And, and, and the sense that I seem to get when I couple passages like that with a passage like this is that if an angel chooses to depart from God, there is no plan of salvation for them. That's it. That kind of makes me want to go back to Psalm 8 again, back to Hebrews 2 verse 6. What is man that you're mindful of him? You see, God loves you. And look at what he's done for you. Look at what Jesus has done for you and for me to be the real deal, certified priest, the one who disarmed Satan and used his own weapon against him. I love that. You see why I said this is my favorite point? But he keeps going. It continues. Because not only was he made like us to die and to destroy death, but he was also made like us in order for him to be our sacrifice. Pick up at verse 17. Therefore... He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. All right, so he's reiterating this point so he can make a second point. He had to be made like us so that 
he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. All right. Jesus had to be made like us to die and to destroy death. God can't die, but humans can. So God came in the form of a man and died for us. But in the second place, in coming and in being made like us, it makes Jesus be a merciful and faithful high priest. Analyze those two words a minute. Jesus is our merciful high priest. Mercy. Compassion. Your pain in my heart. I want to consider life from your perspective. I want to step into your skin, walk around in your shoes a while, and then I'm going to come back and step into my skin, and I'm going to act and react toward you the way that I would hope you would treat me if I was in your position. Merciful. Sympathy with the misery of another, which leads one to act in his behalf in such a way that he can try and relieve the pain. Tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. I don't think that Jesus' temptations were just a cakewalk for him. I don't think that he just sat back and yawned and said, nah, get away, Satan. Analyze Matthew 4 and Luke 4 sometime. You know, the three temptations. As oftentimes we emphasize that with each temptation, Jesus responded by quoting scripture. Absolutely, that's right. But look at what Satan is tempting him to do. I think what Satan is doing is is appealing to what Jesus is going to be doing. And he's saying, don't you want to bypass all that? Don't you know that if you'll just bow down to me, I'll give you the whole world. If your purpose in coming is to help all these people and you want all these people to follow you, I'll give you the world and they'll be yours. You don't have to go down that path of pain and suffering. Don't you think that was a temptation? And we know Jesus never gave in to it. And you know it's not a sin to be tempted. It is a sin to give in to temptation. And so we're not saying that Jesus ever did anything wrong. But we are saying that temptation is temptation. It's hard. And Jesus knows what it's like. He's faithful. He doesn't quit halfway. He saw it through to the very end. And that's why among the seven sayings, In fact, the last one, he said, it is finished. He saw it all the way through. He is merciful and he is faithful in his service to God. And as a result of that, he is not only our high priest who is the one who can offer the sacrifice, but he made propitiation for the sins of the people, a covering, atoning sacrifice. He was that very sacrifice for us. And look at the result. Because he himself has suffered, he suffered all through his life. Remember he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, because Peter said, Lord, I'm never going to let something like that happen to you. Jesus tried to start telling him in Matthew 16, 19, and 20, and 21 about the things that were going to happen to him and the death that must shortly take place. Peter says, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, not on my watch. Peter, you don't even know what you're talking about. You get out of the way. That's Satan talking. You don't even understand the ignorance of the statement you just made. Get behind me. Don't you think if we would have been in Jesus' shoes, it would have been easy to say, okay, Peter, (laughs) get out that sword, man, and swing away, you know. 
Malchus's ear, Malchus's head, whatever. Let's get out of here. In the garden. What about the impenitent thief in Luke 23, who even on the cross is saying, if you're really the Christ, save yourself and us. Prove it. If you say uh, that you are really him, if you're the son of God, prove it by saving us all from this terrible death right now. And we sang it yesterday morning. He could have called legions of angels to destroy the world and set him free. It would have been way easier for Jesus to have abandoned the mission And to let us all go to the destiny, that is to say, the bed that we've made for ourselves. Right? We chose it. But Jesus is merciful and he's faithful. And because of all this, verse 18, he has suffered when tempted and thus he is able to help those who are being tempted. So when I'm at a crossroads... When I'm in a moment of a decision, a moment of choice, the right thing or the wrong thing, the God-honoring, glorifying thing or the thing that is opposite from what God wants me to do, according to this text, Jesus will run to my aid when I cry for help because he knows what that's like. He knows how it feels. He knows the struggle and the pain. And he is eager to help us. In fact, the writer of Hebrews will go on to say later in the book, he ever lives to make intercession for us. Now I'm telling you, this is personal. The writer of Hebrews has written this so that the original individuals back in the first century to whom he was writing could be strengthened and encouraged and commit themselves once again to Jesus. But I'm telling you this evening, this is just as personal for you and for me. And if there is a doubt about my forgiveness, about even whether Jesus can forgive, don't, Jesus, don't you know my past? Don't you know the things that I've done? Jesus is a qualified Savior. Jesus has produced through his sacrifice a unified people who are the sons that are being daughters that are being called to God's glory through him. Jesus is our merciful and faithful, certified, real deal, genuine, authentic high priest. And the sacrifice that he has offered is for you, just as much as it is for me or for anybody else. Yes, he can forgive you. And he's ready to forgive you this evening if you need to respond to him in faith and submission to his will. Are you a Christian? Are you his? Have you been forgiven? Do you have doubts? Remove them all. And come to the Savior who loves you and who died for you. This evening, if you're not a New Testament Christian, we would rejoice with you as you are buried with Christ in a watery grave of baptism. We've got water prepared. I'm pretty confident there's probably some clothing into which you can change. You don't have to leave out of here wet. There are towels to help you. There are men and women who will rally around you and support you and encourage you, not just tonight, but in every step of the way after that. Are you ready this evening to be forgiven by Jesus and by God? Tonight, if as a New Testament Christian, you're assessing your life and you're thinking, wow, look at what Jesus has done for me. But there are some days when I don't feel like carrying a heavy cross, and so I don't. 
There's some moments when I don't want to stand out and so I sort of blend in. And in so doing, I don't confess Jesus as the Christ. Instead, I look more like the world. Maybe you need the forgiveness of God tonight. Maybe you need the prayers of this group of people who love you and care for you. Whatever your need tonight, the Lord's invitation is open all the time. Let's remind ourselves of that now and sing to encourage one another while we stand together.